Hello listeners, Mr. Prince here again with Tokarn Transmissions. Our myth today is an old English myth called the Dragon and St. George. It's a bit of a weird one, because even though it's an old English myth, it's not based in England. But we'll talk about that when we get into the story. dragons today, mainly thanks to the knights and heroes who so thoughtlessly rode about the place, killing them off. This is a pity, for dragons must have been astonishing creatures, part snake, part crocodile, and bits of lion and eagle and hawk thrown in for good measure. Not only could they leap into the air and fly, a tremendous feat when you think how heavy their scales must have been, but they could also run at great, great speed. Not that a dragon would ever run away. Dragons were generally very brave creatures. When they were angry or frightened, smoke would come hissing out of their nostrils. When things got really rough, flames would rush out of their mouths. But there was no such thing as a cowardly dragon. Only the Chinese understood and admired the dragon. It was often said that some of the greatest Chinese emperors had been born the sons of dragons. Dragon bones and teeth were used as medicine. A dragon guarded the house of the Chinese gods and brought rain to the earth when the crops needed it. That is why the Chinese still fly dragon kites and honour the dragon by including paper models of it with their New Year celebrations. The Chinese really, really did like the dragon. But in the 4th century, Palestine, when St George was born, Dragons were more feared than admired. It is true that they did have some unsettling habits. They tended to live in rather dank and nasty caves, for example, often guarding huge, huge piles of treasure, which had almost certainly been stolen from somebody else. They also had an unhealthy appetite for humans, their favourite food being princesses, although any young woman would do. But they were not the only man-eating animals on the globe. It was just them that got all the uh, bad publicity. Anyway, St. George was the most famous dragon killer of all, which is strange because he never actually killed a single dragon. The other strange thing is that he really was born in Palestine, even though later he became the patron saint of England. His father was a high-ranking officer in the Roman army, and for a time, George too served as a soldier under the emperor Diocesan. He was converted to Christianity at a time, when the Christians were suffering their worst persecution and travelled the world spreading the gospel and doing good. His encounter with the dragon happened at a small town called Silin. Today, Silin has become known as the city of Beirut, and this is where our story begins. The people of Silin had lived in fear of the dragon for many, many years. 
It lived in a cave on the edge of a stagnant lagoon a few miles from the town. Now, the vapours from this lagoon would often be carried by the wind into the town. And the people came to believe that the dragon was responsible for the rotten, disgusting smell that seeped through their streets. So they began to feed the dragon two sheep every day in the hope it would go away. Of course, once the dragon got used to free lunch at 12 o'clock regularly, it thought, I think I'll stay. I think I'll stay here for a while. Perhaps it even decided that, trans that the townspeople must be genuinely fond of it because they treated it so well. Certainly, I had no idea that they were afraid of it. Eventually, the town people, who were really a bit daft, began to run out of sheep. So a council was called, at which all the most important people, and the king himself, met to decide what they were going to do. We have given the dragon 1,000 of our sheep, the minister for external affairs said, but it still won't go away. Perhaps it won't go away the Minister for Internal Affairs said, because it does not like sheep. I agree, the other minister said, but what are we going to give it instead? Then the king spoke, and his face was grim. It's well known, he said, the dragon liked the taste of children. We must give him our children. Once a week we will feed the dragon with our sons and daughters. The result of this was quite frightful, and a lot of people were very angry. But several minutes later, they all quieted down, and the king spoke again. We will have a lottery, he continued. Every child in the town will be given a number. Once a week, a number will be drawn out of a hat. That child that has the number will be given the dragon in order to save the town. He rose to the feet. That is my law, he concluded. There are to be no exceptions. Three months passed, during which time no fewer than a dozen children were left at the, at the dragon's cave. Seven boys and five girls went to that cave and never returned. As for the dragon, <coughs> it noticed the change in its feeding. It was actually quite puzzled. But the king had been quite right to say that it would like the taste and found, in fact, it found the children delicious, so much better than sheep. So it stayed. By the time that George arrived, an atmosphere descended on Silent more poisonous than any mist that had blown from the lagoon. Every Tuesday, the day of the lottery, the streets were so silent that if the town had become a cemetery, you wouldn't have noticed the difference. Few people left their homes, and those that did went about their business with a pale face. Their mouths stretched in grimace of fear, each avoiding the other's eyes. Then, at midday, a bell would ring. Soldiers would knock on the house of a door, door of a house somewhere in the town. A great cry would break the silence. And everywhere, parents would hug their children and thank the gods that their number had not been chosen. St George came on a Tuesday afternoon, a few hours after one of the lotteries had ended. It didn't take him long to find out what was happening in Silent. And when he did find out, he was shook. He shook his head, half in astonishment, half in despair. Straight away he went to the palace to find the king and as he walked into the throne room he heard the following conversation. You can't! The king was saying. I forbid it! But you told us to, one minister replied. You made the law, a second added. You said no exception, a third added. 
but she's my, but she's a prince, but she's the princess, she's my daughter. Tears ran down the king's cheeks. She didn't even tell me that she had been given a number. When I find the idiot who gave her a number, I'll... The princess was not given a number, the first minister interrupted. She took one. She wanted to be like all the other children. My only child, the king wept. You can't do it. It's too late, your majesty, the second minister said. It's already done. St George realised there was no time to waste. He left the palace without even introducing himself. He leapt onto his horse and rode out of the town in the direction of the lagoon. It wasn't difficult to find the stench from the stagnant water was so strong he could quite literally follow his nose. The sound of weeping told him that he'd found the cave and that, contrary to what the old minister had said, he was not too late. The dragon had overslept that day and was still a little bit sleepy. The princess was still alive, sitting on the ground with her hands tied behind her back. St George got off his horse and walked over to her. And at that precise moment, there was a sudden rumble from inside the cave and the dragon appeared. The dragon was far, far smaller than St George had expected. It wasn't a lot larger than a horse. It was bright green in colour with a peculiar misshapen body. Its wings, for example, were far too small to enable it to fly. On one wing, there was a pink ring, and on the other, a red one. He had two rather squat legs and claws and a long serpent-like neck. But the only, but the one really menacing thing about it was its teeth, which were white and very, very sharp. When the princess saw the dragon, she closed her eyes and waited for the end. But George wasn't afraid. Naughty dragon, he exclaimed. Do you really mean to eat this young girl? The dragon growled uncertainly. Uncertainly, The girl opened her eyes. Do you not know that eating people is wrong? St George continued. It's really bad for dragons and it's even worse for people. Smoke trickled out of the dragon's nostrils and formed a question mark over its head. Enough of this foolishness. St. George untied the girl and helped her to her feet. Then he took a ribbon from her dress and tied it around the dragon's neck. Let's go back to Silene and talk this over. He bowed to the princess. I must say, lady, he said, you will make a wiser and kinder ruler than your father. That much your actions have shown. You can imagine the uproar in Silene when St. George and the princess returned, leading the dragon on a ribbon. Suffice to say that once they understood what had happened, the entire town converted to Christianity. And so, in fact, did the dragon. A short while later, the king retired from the throne, and his daughter, who had been in the meantime marrying a neighbouring prince, became queen. The two of them ruled well and wisely for many years, and it would be nice to think that the dragon ended its days in the palace gardens, a friend and a playmate of the queen's children. And even, although perhaps this is asking a bit too much, a vegetarian. That was a story of the dragon and St. George, an old English legend set a long, long time ago. Tune in next time on 
we'll go somewhere else. Bye.